Good morning. Wow, dreary outside, dreary inside. Uh, turn to Romans chapter 11. I will be going to uh, through a lot of verses today, so, uh, but this will be our launching pad, um, verses 33 through 36. <clears throat> if you need a Bible, raise your hand, and we will get you one. And you can have the Bible. Unless you just forgot your Bible, then don't take our Bibles. Just kidding, you can have it. Okay, Romans 11, 33 through 36, the word of the Lord. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? And who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your people. Thank you for truth. Thank you for rest. Thank you for assurance. Thank you for repentance. Thank you for conviction. Thank you for all that you provide for us. Thank you for eternal life, the hope that we have in this life, the living hope, Lord. Thankful that it is is eternal life and not temporal life. Uh, Thankful that you... Uh, begin a good work and that you finish it and that part of your finishing process is your people gathering together, sitting under the authority of your word and just receiving grace. And Lord, our declaration of our need gives you glory. May you receive that glory today as we, we just, we rest and, and we, we show our utter dependence upon your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> okay. Um, I'm going to be starting a five or six point, six point series on the doctrines of grace, on salvation, a.k.a. Calvinism. I'm not a huge fan of that word. The older I get, the more of a fan I like it, and I don't really care. Um, the problem is a lot of people don't know what the word Calvinism is, and so uh, people ask me, a Calvinist? If I'm a Calvinist, I usually say, what is a Calvinist? <laughs> And then when they start telling me the five points, I say, well, what are the five, like, what does that point mean? Um, because uh, Calvinism in a lot of circles, Calvinists in a lot of circles, it, it's a dirty word. And the, the, the thing is, labels are good as long as they're good. Labels are only bad when they're bad. Um, there's nothing wrong with labels, just like there's, just an example, there's nothing uh, inherently wrong with, like, authority, but there's good authority and there's bad authority, right? And so there's good labels, there, but there's also... Uh, Labels are good. Sometimes we're, we, we make a mess of them, but that doesn't mean necessarily the labels are bad, all right? So we're going to do a series on Calvinism, salvation, uh, the doctrines of grace. The reason I like to call it Calvinism rather than just the doctrines of grace um, is because um, people that aren't Calvinists, they, 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 they wouldn't know that it's specifically referred to like soteriology and, and, and the Reformed and Calvinistic view of that salvation, okay? They would just... Doctrines of grace, yes, we all believe in the doctrines of grace. Uh, but we, we do, but we don't to the same way that I'm going to spell them out in the, in the following weeks. Um, I'm going to start, this is not original, this isn't, uh, 
this is actually how I came to, to, to adhere to uh, the Calvinistic doctrine of salvation, uh, was through the doctrine of God. Um, and again, this isn't, this isn't original at all. It, my sermon today is on the sovereignty of God, okay? And this is actually how I landed at Calvinism, is doing a deep dive in the doctrine of God, um, specifically the sovereignty of God. And it was through a phrase that someone said to me. They said, God, do you believe that God is the first cause of everything? And I will admit, I was stumped. I was in a corner. Um, how, everybody believes that God is sovereign, but then you find out that people have different degrees of how sovereign they actually think God is, which is actually contradictory to the very definition of God being sovereign. He is either in absolute total control of everything or he is not, right? And so this little phrase or this question that was asked to me, do you uh, believe that God is the first cause of everything, sent me on a journey uh, to understand God more. The attributes of God, we would call them, the theology proper. Um, and my starting place was the sovereignty of God. And as I studied the sovereignty of God, then it led me to the conclusions of the doctrines of grace. That if God is sovereign, that he's sovereign over salvation. And how sovereign? Absolutely, totally sovereign. So again, what does sovereign, sovereignty mean? God is sovereign. What do I mean when I say that? What if uh, reformers and, and Christians throughout the history of the church meant when they've said that God is sovereign. Well, what we mean is that uh, rudimentary, I think rudimentary is the right word. That's a big word for me, so maybe it's not. Um, is that God is in absolute total control of everything. Just that, That's at the basic, that, that's it. But here's what's cool. is he's. It's not random control. It's not um, pointless control. This is why I like to, and I'll close the sermon with this, that God is not only sovereign, God is good. He has a purpose in everything that he's doing. And it's a good purpose. And you could say it's all for uh, his glory. Doesn't mean that we're going to understand the purpose in this lifetime. Doesn't mean we won't. Sometimes we will, sometimes we won't. Sometimes you just live long enough and you see God's sovereign plan work out in glorious ways. You see that the things that you went through that you would never want to put yourself through, let alone anybody else. You see, as you look back a lot of times in life, that God was, man, I wouldn't have done it that way, but maybe I wouldn't be where I am today if it wouldn't have been done that way. We are going to see all of that in the next life, all right? Absolutely. When we pass on from this life, we are going to understand there is going to be no accusations thrown towards God. I mean, for even the, the craziest, wildest uh, suffering that you can conjure up in your mind. doesn't mean those things are good, the sufferings are good. doesn't mean they're good, but it does mean that God is still in absolute total control of those sufferings and that he's working those things for good. It means he is the primary cause, the first cause of everything mean, is what we mean when we say God is sovereign. Now, that doesn't take away from the fact that there are secondary causes, which I'm not going to go too deep in here, Okay. But secondary causes would be like Satan would be a secondary cause. Um, nature, secondary cause. Man, especially fallen man, when we think about evil and suffering and persecution, a secondary cause. Now, if, if you're like, well, what in the world? I'll just give you an example, and then we're going to move on. You can talk to me afterwards if you want. Actually, talk to Painborn. He's better at answering questions. Okay. A secondary cause. We, if we look at the story of Job, we just, see, we just see a perfect example. All right? We see... God, and he's got all of his angels around him. He says, hey, Satan, bro, you see my boy? You, see, you seen him? You seen Job? You like Job? Look at that guy. 
He running the race. Yeah, he's only running the race because you've been good to him. I, I guarantee if I go after him, if you let me go after him, I'm going to get him to curse you. And God allows it. But God just doesn't allow it. I mean, God created Satan. It's incredible to think about. When he created Satan, did he know that Satan was going to inflict Job sometime down the road? Absolutely he knew that. God decrees all things. And so God being the first cause of everything, but then in this story you see directly that Satan would then be the second cause because then Satan then is allowed to inflict uh, incredible amounts of pain and suffering on Job's life. Now, for most people, probably for everyone in this room, the amount of suffering that Job suffered would be an exception to the rule of the amount of suffering we face in this life, okay? But the fact that, that we are being attacked and like life is hard, Job is not the exception to the rule. Job is the rule. But behind all the suffering in Job's life and behind all the suffering in our lives and persecutions and worries, doubts, and fears, and anxieties. All behind it all is a loving father for the Christian. And so we then, when we come to a verse like 11, uh, 36, we see the sovereignty of God just explode. You could absolutely, I, I challenge you, you don't have to take the challenge, that's actually like some, I'm not actually challenging you. you I'll challenge you, but you don't have to come back to me with success, Okay. See if you can find a better verse to sum up all of Scripture than for from him and through him and to him are all things. You, you can't. You actually can't. This is the great summation of all of Scripture. This is the great summation of all of truth. Is Regardless what's going on in our lives and whatever's going on in our brains, especially from our perspective, when we settle this, for from him and through him and to him are all things, and then we have the attitude that Paul has here, to him be glory forever, amen, that's life. This is, this is everything. And so God is sovereign. The doctrine of God, who he is, all right, is foundational for the doctrine of salvation, what he does. What God does naturally follows from who God is. A lot of times when we, when we put the cart before the horse and start trying to determine who God is by what he does, even in the pages of Scripture, that's when we can get confused about actually who God is. But understanding the God who saves is absolutely essential to understanding how he saves. And so you do have people that come to their conclusions of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, they, they come to them void of actually who God is. And that's when you get some whacked on Scooby Neck snack type of stuff. Even, even in Calvinism, you have people that get whacked on hyper-Calvinism, or you, you just, you, you get stuff, but then especially with Arminianism and Molinism, and, which is just Arminianism, sorry, Elijah, when, when, you, when you, I know, I, call, I just called him out, he's, now he's mad at me. <laughs> <laughs> I kid, I kid. This is, when, when, when we devoid it from the doctrine of God, we can come up with some confusing conclusions. I want to present to you, before we get into salvation, who God is. And primarily, again, this isn't original, 
but the fact that he is sovereign. And I think as we see that he is sovereign over his creation, and then that we see is sovereign over the death of Christ, that we're going to see that then, of course, he's sovereign over all of salvation. And I'm going to just walk us through this, just one verse after another. I'm going to make a few comments, but most of these verses, they just speak very clearly for themselves. And Painborn made a great point when he looked at my outline last night. The, the first two points that I'm going to make, all right, that God is sovereign over his creation and that God is sovereign over the death of Jesus, almost nobody disagrees about. When I, when I read the verses, you will see that, there is, that it is as clear as day. It's the re and so it's, it's good to put those two before we start talking about how God says, because it would be weird if everybody agrees that God is absolutely sovereign over creation, all of his creation, every aspect of his creation, and then we see that through Scripture that God is absolutely sovereign and in absolute total control of the death of his son— which we will see clearly, it would, it would be weird that then when we get to us in salvation that somehow he's not sovereign over it. It, it would be, it, it actually makes no sense. That's kind of like two plus two equals five stuff, okay? And so here we go. God is sovereign over his creation. I, again, I'm not trying to convince anybody in this room that God, uh, of Calvinism, or I, I just want to present it beautifully. The fact that God is sovereign is a most glorious doctrine Calvinism is called the doctrines of grace for a reason. It's beautiful, and I'm not, there you go, all right? So here we go, Ephesians 1.11. God works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. Yes, this is a classic go-to verse, but I mean, come on. God is sovereign. He works out not just some things, not just those things that you think that God worked out because they worked out good for you in this life. No, God works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. And guys, this is an opportunity for us to be like, oh, whatever's going on in your life, we're already going to get to application right now. Speaking of cart before the horse. I mean, just think about what's going on in your life right now. God is going to work it all out. He's working it all out according to the purpose of, of his will. Even the things that are like, what is going on over there? What, what, what's happening? God is working out that thing too. He is, absolutely. The Lord, Psalm 103, 19, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. See, God is ruling right now. He is the king. He, he doesn't, he's not a, he didn't wind the clock and then step back and just let things unfold. He's, he's engaged. He's ruling now. He rules over all. Psalm 135, the Lord does whatever he pleases in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the depths. He causes the clouds to rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for rain and brings the wind from his storehouses. Absolutely total control of everything. In charge, he does whatever he pleases on heaven and on earth. Psalm 115, our God is in heaven and does whatever he pleases. That speaks for itself. Nebuchadnezzar, actually, as soon as he finally comes back to his sanity, here's what he says. Then I praised the Most High and honored and glorified him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. 
All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does what he wants with the army of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. He does what he wants. There is no one who can block his hand or say to him, what have you done? When it's all said and done, nobody is going to be able to look at God and say, what did you do? What have you done? We're going to be, we're going to be like, praise God from whom all blessings flow. That's what we're going to do. Isaiah 45, this is fascinating, okay? This is where it's like, wow, I, this is God. I form light and create darkness. I make success and create disaster. I am the Lord who does all these things. He is the first cause of everything. Now, yes, his ways are, are past finding out, but we, we, as long as we just can just stand and rest on these foundations, we don't, we're not God. We don't have to, we don't, we don't get to decide whether God is God and whether he's true or not, or whether his word is true or not, based on whether or not we understand it 100% or not, or whether we even agree with it, or however we can make sense of it. If we could figure out everything and why everything, then we would be God. We would be God. I mean, we can know right and true things about God because we have his word. Um, but ultimately, God is past finding out completely. Absolutely. No one knows the mind of God completely. For in him, we live and move and have our being. I mean, that's Acts. That's, that's Paul uh, uh, quoting a Greek philosopher. So even a Greek philosopher, whether he was a Christian or not, had a right doctrine and understanding of if there is a God, then God is absolutely sovereign over everything. Uh, Lamentations. This is another one. Who is there who speaks and it happens? Unless the Lord has ordained it. Do not both adversary and good come from the mouth of the Most High. God is sovereign over all of his creation. The Son sustains or upholds all things by the power, power, his powerful word. He's active. He's not on the sidelines. Currently, the Son, the second person, and, and of course, this is the, the whole Trinity is doing all, it's, they call that inseparable operations. Of course, the whole Trinity is engaged in upholding the world. But here, it's specifically shown to us that the Son upholds all things, all things, not some things. Again, not that, not that thing because it's good in your eyes and not that thing because it's bad in your eyes. No, all things. And then we have Genesis 50, 20. Joseph, you planned evil against me, secondary causes, all right? These men did evil, but God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. There's the mystery that, that God when evil is done towards us, whether it's Job and Satan or whether it's Joseph and his brothers or Joseph and men, what, what people intend for evil against God's people, God intends for good. And we have to wrestle, not necessarily with these verses, but with our own emotions and feelings when our life is in the ringer, when our life is in the rut. We have to, again, we're not being called to be robots and indifferent to suffering. I'm not suffering. God's working it all out for good. Not suffering. Not suffering. No. No, we're not doing that. But in light of knowing that God is in absolute total control of everything, 
in light of knowing that just like with Joseph, those who plan evil against us, God is, is planning it for good, and not only for our good, but usually, 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 usually for the good of other people, all right? When we, when we can sit with that, then we can have sorrow still, but then we can have this thread like Paul of rejoicing in the midst of sorrow. We can have a hope in the midst of seemingly defeat and hopelessness, knowing and resting and, 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 and um, putting our hope and trust in a God who is in absolute, total control over every jot, every tittle, every dot, every single thing in life. All right. James, and this is my last one for here, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. You don't even know what your life will be. For you are like a vapor that appears for a little while, then vanishes. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now, he's, it's a, he's making a really good point. He's, this point is not against plans. This point is not saying, hey, before you even make plans, you better say like some magic thing. Or if, if the Lord wills it, we will live and do this or that. I better say that because I don't want to be these people. No, this is just having a settled understanding, a right theology, a right doctrine, that if whatever you think you're going to do tomorrow, it is by the grace of God. Whatever great plans you have in store for your life, if, if it's according to God's will, then it'll come. If it's not according to God's will, it will, it will not come. All right? So God is sovereign over his creation. He creates, he does whatever he wants with his creation, but remember, whatever he wants to do is good and for his glory, and that's what's best for us. Um, he's in charge of nature. He's in charge of Satan. He's in charge of man and what they're doing. He's in charge of you. Everything has been ordained. Everything has been decreed before the foundations of the world, and then in God's providence, it's being worked out in real time in the history of man, okay? That's what we have clear clearly before us, all right? Now, the only people that would already disagree with me are, are because they know where I'm eventually landing, the plane, okay? But if, if, I, if they didn't know where I was going, I don't see how you could disagree with this scripture. It's here. It's, it's so clear. I know this doesn't mean we don't have questions, and I'll tell you right now, I don't have a lot of the answers for you. The, the, the why this and the why that, I'm probably just going to say, I, I don't know, but God is good. God is in control, all right? God is sovereign over Christ's death. This is made crystal clear, all right? He is sovereign over the accomplishment of salvation. Here's some verses for you, Acts 2, 22 through 24. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know, though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you, here we go again, first cause, second cause, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. Man, that's Joseph's life on steroids. God uses evil people to fulfill his plan that was planned before, um, based on his foreknowledge and for the foundations of the world, and yet it was all to give God glory and for the salvation of many people. I mean, the worst thing that's ever happened to anybody happened to Jesus. 
And yet it is the greatest point in history, the history of the world. But God used, it was his plan, gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ is plan A, all right? But it was carried out in real time by evil men. All right, Acts 3. And now, brothers and sisters, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your leaders also did. In this way, God fulfilled what he had predicted through all the prophets that his Messiah would suffer. Absolute, total control of the death and the suffering of Jesus Christ. Although you see man acting lawlessly and evil and in ignorance, God's not lawless. God is not evil. God is not ignorant. God knows exactly what he's doing. Everything going according to his perfect plan. Acts 4, for in fact in this city both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. I'll read that one more time. All right. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand had predestined to take place. There's no, there's no way of getting around this. Yes, men acted evil, but God predetermined, predestined all of this to take place before the foundations of the world. This is why my father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down. I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my father. Jesus is in absolute total control of his death and his suffering. He says, you would have no authority over me at all if it had not been granted to you from above. The Father is in absolute, total control of what, is, what took place in Jesus' life. Blessed is the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him, in him is key, in him, before the foundations of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him, if we were chosen before the foundations of the world, which is what it says, notice it says that we were chosen in him. That means Jesus was chosen before the foundations of the world. We were chosen in Christ. Therefore, again, the gospel of Jesus Christ is plan A. It's not plan B. God did not go, oh, Adam, what are you doing? <laughs> what was I thinking? No, the Godhead, the triune God, knew, of course they knew, in eternity past, before anything was ever created, they knew exactly what Adam and Eve would do. They knew, of course they did. It's why you have to have a right doctrine of God. Does God, not only is he in control of everything, see how this then leads to all these other attributes, because this is, this is like uh, the simplicity of God. Like his power is his knowledge. His knowledge is his holiness. It's all, God is not made up of parts, all right? So God, of course, is in absolute total control of everything, but connected to the fact that he's in control of everything is that he knows everything. So does he know everything? Was there ever a point that God didn't, did God, has God ever learned anything? No, no, no. My four-year-old knows that. 
I think. Israel knows that. Zeus knows it. God has never learned a thing. So, so he was not caught off guard. I had this wonderful plan. I, had, I mean, I, I had to put him in a garden. I, now, now what? Well, plan B, guys. Plan B. Plan B. N no. No, not at all. Peter says, speaking of Jesus, Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. And then in Revelation, we read, Jesus Christ is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. This was, this was the plan, always was. God in absolute, total control over his creation. Of course he is. God in absolute, total control of his plan of salvation through Christ for his creation. Now, when we start thinking about us, it, can, can See how weird it would be and actually bad it would be if all of a sudden he's like, okay, God cannot not be sovereign. <laughs> he can't just be like, I'm actually going to not be in control. He can't do that. He would not be God. God can't not know something. I'm going to not know this on purpose. Not know what? That thing, well, you just said you knew it. So now what are you going to do? I'm going to erase my mind? No, th these are things that are impossible. There are things God can't do. One of them would be that he can't not not know anything. I don't, do I have to say not not? I don't know. Sounds weird. He can't not be sovereign over everything. That would, he would be ceasing to be God then. And so when we get to us, when we get it locked in that he is sovereign over creation and sovereign over the accomplishment of salvation for his people by sending his son over everything. I mean, think about it. When Jesus is on the scene and then you have John the Baptist on the scene, what's the first thing John the Baptist says? One of the first things. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How in control of the death of Christ is God? So much so that John the Baptist knows the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He came, he was always going to come. And he was always going to suffer. He was always going to die. If God is not sovereign, then here's the deal. There is no salvation. Zero. But God is sovereign. Number one, he created us. Check. Yes. Number two, he sent his son for us. Check. We, we know this. We, we know this. He chose us. These are what I'm going to get into in the following weeks, okay? So I'm not going to unpack this. He chose us before the foundations of the world. It, and not, not to make fun of anybody. Sarah says this is, I shouldn't say this. So I probably shouldn't, which means I'm absolutely going to, Okay. He, we're chosen before the foundations of the world. Guys, that's like fifth grade reading comprehension stuff, okay? I know that we can have questions about it, but it's, it's just a simple, glorious truth. Praise God we are chosen before the foundations of the world, all right? Absolute total control. He lived for us. We talked about that today. He lived a, a perfect life for us, the life that we should have lived, but, but after the fall of Adam, could not live, Christ not only came, but he lived, and he lived for us to attain righteousness for us. We don't just need forgiven, we need righteousness, and we have that in Christ because he came and he lived on our behalf, but we also know he died for us, so he lived the life that we should have lived but couldn't live, but then he died the death that we should have died. Every step of the way, he is sovereign over our salvation. 
And then in real time, chosen before the foundations of the world, in real time, we then, by the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we are chosen in our time. We are called effectually, which I'll get into in later sermons. We are then called. We are regenerated. Our hearts are made alive. We are given faith. All these things spill over in the, the, the effectual calling that happens in the life of a believer in real time. And if he doesn't do this, no one's getting saved. Nobody's going, I believe because I turned on the light bulb in my own brain. I gave myself a new heart. That's incredible. How did you do that? You didn't. I birthed myself again. That's weird. How does one do that? And if we could believe with our old hearts, which is what it would mean if God is not sovereign over salvation, then God would have no reason to give us a new heart. Desperately in need. We wouldn't have to be born again if we could actually, in our natural birth, although the Bible says the natural man doesn't understand the things of the Spirit, we wouldn't need to be born again if we could believe the things of the Spirit. Everyone believes that natural man doesn't understand the things of the Spirit until we get to the gospel and somehow natural man understands the most amazing spiritual truth in the history of mankind. No. God does, and God calls in real by the preaching of the gospel. And by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, he draws his people to himself. And then he preserves us. He, he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. He began the good work. I mean, personally, when he, when he made us alive, all right, when he birthed us again, when he gave us a new heart. But on the grand scope of things, when did God begin the work in our lives? Before the foundations of the world. And then in real time, when he started creating. And that work, the whole thing is for the redemption of man. God does not, does not, never has needed man. This doesn't mean we're worthless pieces of crap, okay? Because sometimes that's used as like that thing, okay? No, no, no. We're created in the image of God. Even though we are, we are fallen human beings, the, the, the image of God has not been totally wiped away. It's certainly been marred to where we can't understand the things of the Spirit and we can't believe God, doesn't mean we don't have a free will. It just means our free will is tapped out about on ourself and sin and selfishness. God has to get, make us alive for us to really have the capacity to have free will and to do the one thing we can't do unless we're made alive, which is to believe God, love God, and love his law and go obey him. None of us in this room, we know, are robots. How sovereign is God over the salvation of his people. Here's a great verse, all right? Everyone that the Father gives me will come to me. That's how sovereign he is over our salvation. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. Wow. Start. Finish. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given God's will will never be thwarted. Therefore, everyone the Father gives to Jesus will come to Jesus, and all those that come to Jesus will never, ever, ever be cast out, and he will lose none of those that have ever been given to Jesus, the elect. But he should raise them up on the last day. That's where it's all going. This is why the sovereignty of God is so glorious, because we're going to be raised up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, not temporal life, 
Not if you can make it life, not if you hold on to it life, not if you don't lose it life, but eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So what is the application? What do we do with the sovereignty of God? I mean, give me something to do. Okay, but first off, no. No. Knowing who God is is its own reward. I mean, how can we love the one that we don't know? We can't even love our wives the way we need to love them or our husbands, our spouses, we'll just say spouses, if, if we don't know them. We can't love one another unless we know one another and gradually get on the, the road to knowing one another. Well, then how can we know God or love God if we don't know him? And all of God's attributes, but specifically here today, the sovereignty of God, knowing that God is sovereign and absolute total control of everything. If I knew that every one of you in this room, and I think you are, but I don't know. I don't know where you're all at. If I knew that every one of you was absolutely convinced of this truth, then the application takes care of itself. But even knowing that, I know how we are as people, and we forget glorious truths all the time, which is why we proclaim the gospel every week here. Because we know, not, it's not that I know you forget, and i got to freaking remind you. I forget. I need reminded. We forget. We need reminded of the gospel. And we need reminded um, from time to time of just the beautiful truth that God is sovereign over everything. Over creation, over the accomplishment of salvation and sending his son, and over my own salvation. Start, middle, ending, every single thing. So in control that he had it all locked up before I was even born. Man, what does that do to us? Well, it helps us to understand that God is not only sovereign, because our definitions can get sometimes like uh, we can form this illustration and this picture in our brain of, of, of maybe a tyrant. No, God is good. And we have it all jam-packed for us in Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. Well, right there you have, again, it's, again, you can't separate the attributes of God. You can talk about them separately, but you can't separate them. Again, that's called the simplicity of God. If you want to look that up, you should do that. Because we have God, the fact that all things work together means God has to be all-powerful which is so related to the fact that it means that God has to be in absolute total control of everything. But what's it work for? It works for the good. Why? Because God is good. Everything is working together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purposes. Those he foreknew, listen, he just got it locked in. Those he foreknew, he predestined. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Absolute total control over, over salvation. And what that does for us, instead of us doing something right off the gate, is it just gives us wonderful, 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 glorious assurance. Which I actually am starting to believe that this was the main thing through the doctrines that were retrieved and, re and the revival of right gospel doctrine in the Reformation that this was actually the, the main thing that was retrieved in the Reformation, was assurance for God's people. Because if salvation is of the Lord, through and through, 
foreknowing, remember foreknowing is not looking down the corridors of time and knowing you were going to choose him, so God chose you. That would be weird because that's still you just choosing God, all right? Uh, God picks winners. No, he doesn't. He picks the foolish things of the world, all right? But, but knowing that we're foreknown, foreloved, that we're chosen before the foundations of the world, that we're chosen in real time, that we're justified by God, that we're sanctified by God, that we're glorified by God, and it's all according to the predestined perfect plan of God, knowing that should give you assurance on your worst day and on your best day. When all your worries and doubts of salvation, again, you may not walk around with it, but if you're human, you probably have moments where you're like, am I even saved? Well, when you know that salvation is completely of the Lord, then you just get a rest, regardless of how you feel. Our salvation is totally devoid from our doing. And because it's a gift, we'll never, we'd never lose it. We're not holding on to Christ. Christ is holding on to us. We didn't grab salvation. Christ grabbed us. And he doesn't change his mind. He doesn't throw us back. So it gives us wonderful assurance. It gives us wonderful rest. Just in the, the, just the heat of life and the ups and downs of life. I mean, God's sovereignty, and I say this often, it might be cheesy. I love it. It is the pillow that we lay our heads down on every night. Mothers with kids, I got one. But cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs sometimes, thinking about the kids and what they're going to be like when they get older and thinking about the kids and are they smart or are they dumb? Am I doing a good job as a homeschool mom? Am I, uh, are I, what if I'm raising a bunch of idiots? What if I'm raising a bunch of people that are going to turn into a bunch of drug dealers and it's all going to be my fault? And then you got the dad who's working his tail off wondering if he's, uh, what if I can't, what if we're not going to make mortgage? I, we, what if, what, what, then you got, you got people with, we all got our health issues. We have all this stuff going on. Then we look out. I mean, me and Paul spent two hours together. Two. It was glorious. And we talked about a lot of stuff we talked about was chaos. <laughs> but it was good to just talk about the things that are going on in the world with somebody else that's just, when it's all said and done, it's like, what is there to do but believe in God? Well, I mean, but it's not like, ah, hey, man, the least thing you can do is, but no, the best, it's awesome. Because we get to talk about what's going on out there. And we do sometimes get waylaid by it. That's fine. We're humans. But we don't stay there for forever, not even in this life usually, because of doctrines like the sovereignty of God, knowing that he's working all things for good, because he can and he will. And we worship him because he's sovereign. So we have glory. We just, we have. So we receive assurance and we receive rest. And what do we do? We worship. The 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne, and, the wor and they worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne and say, O oh Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. You can come up, Elijah. That's there's a lot of things to do, I guess, but worship. We just worship the Lord as his people. That was Revelation 4. In Revelation 7, we read, 
After this, I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. This isn't some, this isn't some high horse theology that has no, no effect or no application in the life of people. This, this is everything. This is everything we hold on to. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? No one. Who has been his counselor? No one. Who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? Nobody. Nothing. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and amen. Just like we will in Revelation, just like Paul is doing here, we just... We praise the Lord for his sovereignty. We praise the Lord for his sovereign grace. We praise the Lord for his power and his goodness. We praise the Lord for salvation because salvation is everything. And we then rest in this life that is topsy-turvy. And we, life is throwing things at us, but then we realize, realize life isn't throwing things at us. God is. Why, God? I have no idea. I'm going to trust you. And we rest, and we actually gain assurance, and we worship. And I'll close with this. This is out of 1 Samuel. I found this fascinating. The Lord brings death and gives life. He sends some down to Sheol, and he raises others up. Praise the Lord. Mercy. The Lord brings poverty and gives wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the trash heap. He sets them with noblemen and gives them a throne of honor. For the foundation of the earth are the Lord's. He has set the world on them. And here we go. He guards the steps of his faithful ones. But the wicked perish in darkness. For a person does not prevail by his own strength. Praise the Lord. Hey, he guards the steps of his faithful ones. We are the faithful ones. Why? Because we're so faithful? No, because Christ is. We are the ones that don't prevail by our own strength. What would we have prevailed in if we were allowed to prevail in our own strength? Rejection of God. Rejection of Christ. But no, because of his great love and his great mercy, he comes for his people, saves his people, and then we just get a rest that he is guarding all of our steps. He who began the good work will be faithful to complete it. I don't know. I don't know. When, when you think about what's going on out there, when I think about what's going on in my own brain 99.9% .9 of the time, I don't know what's going on. But I, I know a God who does. And I know that throughout the, all the pages of Scripture, he declares his love for me and his care for me. And although this thing, I can't see why that thing or how that thing would work for the good that, that God says everything's good. I don't know, but I trust the Lord. And we, we can do this, and we can do this together, and we never arrive. So today is just an opportunity before we get into the doctrine of salvation to just see that it flows from the very character of God.
it flows the doctrine of salvation, we're not putting the cart before the horse. We don't want to look at salvation to ultimately determine who God is. We actually don't ever want to look at what God does to determine who God is. doesn't mean we can't glean truths, but I'm telling you, you start down that road, and that's when people come up with some weird ideas about who God is. We are going to put God first. Who is God? Now, now, in the following weeks, let's look at what God does through the lens of who he is. That way, that'll protect us from coming up with any contradictory views about who God is based on what he does. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for you. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for saving us all the way through. Lord, thank you. Thank you that salvation rests solely upon your son and not anything in us. Oh, Lord, thank you for your mercy. Born in sin, sinning our whole life through, wages of sin being death, that's what we deserved. And yet, Lord, because you love us, you had mercy on us. And we are grateful now and we will be grateful for eternity. Lord, help us to rest, help us to have assurance, help us to trust, and help us to worship you today. In Jesus' name, amen.